0: series. Happy Mother's Day as well. Uh, If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up with us to Acts chapter 13. And just so we don't end up spending uh, the rest of our lives working through, I mean, because if we're going to go through the whole Testament in order, we would spend years going, looking at God's providence and everything there is to see. So we're we're limiting ourselves and we're going to Uh, Try to go through a crazy amount of material just today, and then next Sunday, Lord willing, we'll pick up with some major topics. Uh, Those will be topics such as God's sovereignty over nature and natural disasters, God's sovereignty over Satan and demons, God's sovereignty over birth and death, God's sovereignty over even sin itself, all all these major issues that are coming up. So Lord willing, we'll start working through those topically uh, in weeks to come But this is going to be our last week sort of working in order through the Old Testament. And so we've got way more to cover than we have time to cover, but we'll see how far we can get. So, um, Greg, uh, can you pray for us
1: and then we will just dive in? Yeah, let's pray. Father, what a privilege we have been given to uh, be called the people of God. Uh, Lord, we know it is only because of Christ, because of his perfect life, his substitutionary death, his resurrection from the dead, his Um, ascension into heaven, his current session at your right hand as our high priest and intercessor, and Lord, knowing for sure that he's coming back. It's only because of him, God, that we have hope, that we have life, that we are able to gather uh, right now to study your word. And so, God, we pray that above all, our hearts would be drawn to Christ more. Uh, Lord, we pray for for an abundance of wisdom and clarity as we work through Uh, the issue of your providence, uh, your sovereignty purposefully put into action, and God, help us uh, know you better, help us know your word better, Um, and Lord, may all that we look at today further equip us to live in this world and be faithful uh, testimonies for Christ, and we ask this in his name. Amen.
0: Amen. Well, the reason we're in the New Testament to start is because Acts 13 has for us Paul's first ever recorded sermon after his conversion. And this sermon is really remarkable. And he gives it in a Jewish synagogue uh, in an effort to win people to Christ. And I, you remember how a few weeks ago we looked at Psalm 105 and remember how God was doing all the verbs through the whole long chapter? He sent the hail and he did this and that. This is gonna be the same thing, but it's a New Testament version of that. And just watch how God is the one doing all the actions, basically, throughout this message. So uh, Acts 13, starting in verse 16 Uh, Paul uh, stands up uh, to to speak to the synagogue, Acts 13, verse 16. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, said, "'Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen, "'the God of this people Israel chose our fathers "'and made the people great "'during their stay in the land of Egypt, "'and with uplifted arm he led them out of it, "'and for about 40 years he put up with them "'in the wilderness.'" And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land uh, as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he, that is God, had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John was finishing his course, he said, "'What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation.'" I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says, also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Two more verses. Verse 40, beware therefore lest what is said in the prophets should come to come about. Look, you scoffers, and be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Is that not a remarkable chapter on the providence and sovereignty of God? When Paul looks at the history of the Jewish people, who is the primary actor behind the scenes? It's the God of Israel. He he is the one raising up Saul and taking Saul down, raising up David, and on it goes. So now let's turn back to the very events that Paul was just speaking of, and let's jump to Joshua chapter three. Joshua chapter three. Jerry, can you read verses 14 to 17? This is after the 40 years in the wilderness, they're about to cross uh, the Jordan River to enter the Promised Land.
2: Yes, sir, verse 14. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest, The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam. The city that is beside Zarethan and those uh, flowing down toward the Sea of Areba, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite of Jerusalem. Now the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan.
0: Yeah, so this wouldn't be quite the same as what we think of as God's normal providence, but certainly his miraculous sovereignty is at work here, drying up the river and reminding us of the crossing of the Red Sea, right? That the 40 years begins with God parting waters and the 40 years ends with God parting waters as the people walk across miraculously on dry ground and head into the promised land. Uh, Let's jump right into chapter six and then I wanna hear from Greg and Jerry on some of this. Chapter six of Joshua, a look down at verse 20. Well, we all know the story of Jericho, but let's just read the, the part that we're, we're familiar with. Jer- Joshua chapter six, verse 20. So the people shouted, this is on the seventh day, you know, you know all the events, walking around the city seven times. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city. Every man straight before him and they captured the city. So again, you're seeing God's sovereignty on full display. Let's take a breather for a second here. Thoughts just on these general uh, topics here.
2: I want to hear from Greg, but everything's so God-centered. You just have to love that. And when we remember that, our lives are so much different and uh, so much more, I would say, enjoyable. Um, uh, Jesus came to give us life and give it to us abundantly. That is the abundant life, to, to see that life is centered around the Lord and not us. Let us decrease, let him increase.
1: Another thing, looking at the passages that we, we just read in Joshua, I mean, God purposefully puts his people in a position where they have to rely on him. Like, I mean, that seems so simple to say, but it's one of those truths. Like, I think once we, we get it, we need to constantly remind ourselves of it. God's always going to put us in a position where we have to depend on him. Um, you know, that way he gets the glory. We get the joy of seeing him. Work in a way that that and bring something about that we could not physically do ourselves. We don't have the ability, um, and so you know I think we we look at situations that we face, uh, difficult things. We're like, how am I going to get through this? I don't see how I'm going to. You know, things are going to come together. God always puts us in that place. It's not accidental that we are where we are. I mean, constantly throughout Israel's journeys. Uh, the Red Sea here. It's like they cannot do what they need to do. They have to see God come through. And so God's always gonna put us in a place where we are saying, Lord, I'm trusting your promises. I'm trusting your grace. I don't know how I'm gonna make it through this. And that's not saying everything's gonna be you know, unicorns and roses when it's over, but God will help us endure and not forsake our faith in the process. And that is far more valuable, by the way, than getting everything we want out of a circumstance. If we come through hard times with stronger faith and greater trust, then that is the greatest thing God could give us because we've learned to rest in him more than stuff. Um, Just, I guess, gotta mention this because we're telling different stories about
0: things that are going on. And uh, thankfully, this story ends just circumstantially, very positively, uh, every, everything's fine. But on, on Sunday night when we were going to bed, uh, our youngest daughter, Maggie, who's two, she had a little bit of swelling over her right eye, and we didn't, you know, didn't think too much of it. And I thought she maybe had a bug bite or something. So we put her to bed, and uh, we even went back in a check to make sure she was okay. A couple of hours later, we gave her some kind of medicine or something. We went back in a couple hours later, she seemed fine. And then we wake up Monday morning, and I'm getting ready for school, and Kelly's getting the kids ready, and Kelly comes in and is like, Mark, look, and Maggie's eye is swollen like huge, like completely closed, and, uh, and I thought, okay, I mean, that, that does not look good, but she's going to go to, you know, she's going to go somewhere, and we're going to get it dealt with in a few hours. It'll probably be fine. So I take off to school with, the, with at least two of the kids, I guess, and uh, I'm getting ready for my class to start, and I go to see Jerry out in front of our school building, this is a, my, my class starts about 9.40 in the morning on Monday, and so this is like 9.30-ish, and I see Jerry outside, so I walk up to Jerry, and right as I get to Jerry, my phone buzzes, and Kelly says, they're telling us we need to go to Atlanta, to Children's Hospital of Atlanta, to, to look at her eye. And that's all I know. And I'm like, oh, uh, okay. Like, whenever that is said, you you kind of panic as a, as a parent. And so um, Jerry's next to me when I'm starting to panic. I'm like, uh-oh, uh-oh. And so uh, I think you you recommended that I go with Kelly because I'm like, class starts in 10 minutes. I can't just get out of here. But Jerry's like, no, no, you need to go. And I'm like, providentially, I was standing next to Jerry. I would not have thought to do that. I'm like, a class is starting. I can't just leave. So Jerry's like, no, go talk to the lady up there in the office. So Miss Laura Boswell. Laura says, just go, I will get subs. I'm like, you are a hero. And so I just walk out the door and she gets subs for me. I was so thankful. And so then I, I, Kelly comes and picks me up and we drive straight to Atlanta. And on the way to Atlanta, and again, you know, you just you think the worst of every, anything with your kids. So I, I'm just wondering, what could this be? There's a chance it could be fluid behind her eye, which could lead to this and this and this. And we could be in the hospital for days and we don't know what's happening. And I, I don't know. So uh, on the way to the hospital, uh, you know what we're thinking about? I mean, among a million things we're trying to figure out the providence of God is what I'm thinking about. We get into a hospital room. Finally, you know, hours are going by. You finally get into your hospital room. Well, in, we're in the emergency department. We're in a room and uh, we're waiting. Uh, they, they, we do a CT scan and they have to do an IV and she's screaming during a lot of this and all this stuff. And you're just, oh, you hate it for your child. And then uh, we, we get through all that. and We're waiting for news to get back. And we got another hour, hour and a half to wait. And uh, Kelly's, cried, I've cried, and uh, what, what do you do when you're sitting in the room wondering, like, what's, what's wrong? You know, what, what's going on? You, you open your Bible app, and you start reading verses about the providence of God. That's what you do in, in, the, in the hospital room. So you're, you're reading Philippians 4, uh, 19. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. I read that I don't know how many times sitting in that little room. Uh, let me read it again. My God will supply all your needs— According to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus, to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. That does not mean that there's, we're going to get circumstantial good news in an hour. We we did. But that does. I was in no way thinking the Bible promises that we're going to get physical good news with Maggie. It may or may not happen. That's up to God, and God's good either way. But in the you're preparing your heart for the best and the worst, and you're just. I read the end of Romans eight, of course, and and the, the, you know we are being killed all day long. We are sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loves us. Nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. Life, death, the present, the future, nothing can separate us from God's love for us in Christ. So. Uh, Kelly and I shed tears, we're together, we're obviously praying, but the doctrine that rises in those moments more than almost anything you can imagine, of course the cross is right there too, but the providence of God is so richly practical in those moments when you feel helpless and you say, God, God, I'm in your hands. We are in your hands. Just please help. And of course, the doctor came back with, with great news, and she's treated, and you can't even tell right now that there was any problem with Maggie's eye. She looks great. She looks she looks wonderful right now, and there, the swelling has ent- entirely gone down in about 48 hours. But this is a little mini story of this is very practical. Every week of our lives, we, we need to know that God is in control and that he is good. And, and those two things are going to give us uh, assurance when when uh, when we're not sure otherwise what's happening. All let right. right, let's, let's keep going here. Let's look at uh, Joshua chapter seven. Look at starting verse eight here. Uh, Joshua seven verse eight. Um, then jo- so this is when they they go to fight Ai and they lose because Achan had stolen remember goods from Jericho cloak and silver and whatnot. So they lose the battle unexpectedly to the people. Joshua seven verse eight. "'O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name?' He appeals to God's glory, his name. Verse 10, "'The Lord said to Joshua, "'Get up, why have you fallen on your face? "'Israel has sinned. "'They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. "'They have taken some of the devoted things. "'They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings.' Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have, devoted, they, have de, they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Now, look down at verse 14. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes, and the tribe that the Lord, listen, takes by lot, like casting the dice, basically. But the, the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans, and the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the household that the Lord takes shall come near by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. Now, do you see? Not only does God know who stole, and he therefore disciplines Israel for it, and I want to hear from you, Jerry, on the discipline part, but God actually uses His sovereignty over the casting of dice or lots to control exactly which tribe, which family, which individual has stolen these goods. God sovereignly ordains the casting of the dice so that they end up landing exactly on the guilty person, starting from uh, many, many hundreds of thousands down to one man's family. And God does that through His providence. Jerry, thoughts about God's discipline here of yeah, Israel?
2: Yeah. No, and and uh, learned a lot of this from Papa, but Hebrews 12. Uh, the just greatest passage on God's discipline. Verse seven, for it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which you have all participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Uh, Shall we not much more? be subject to the father of spirits and live for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness for at the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So God is faithful in his sovereignty to discipline us. So uh Greg, gave us a, a, one super reason that we have to depend on him. That's why he brings these trials. Other times the trials are to discipline us. We never know which is which or why it is. I don't think we need to know. All we need to know is that God is faithful and sovereign to bring the right circumstance because that's all about our sanctification. What do we know? We will be sanctified because that's what's good. All things work together for good to be conformed to the image of his son. So the great news today is all of us are probably a little quicker to say, oh, that's a great circumstance. Mags, eye uh, healed up that. We, we say God was in that. Had it not healed up, had she been in surgery right now, God would have been equally um, sovereign, equally good. It would have been just a different plan, but still perfect. And so I think that's how we can kind of tell if we're growing in our understanding of this great doctrine when we can accept either way and, and maybe even have joy in either way, um, you know, kind of like this discipline passage.
1: You know, 2 Timothy 3 talks about Scripture being inspired by God as profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Um, sometimes we have the tendency like Joshua to completely respond in the wrong way. I mean, Israel loses in battle. Um, You know, God had told them, don't take any devoted things. Don't do certain, here's how you need to act. Here's how you don't need to act. They, they, they lose what about 30 something people. It's not a whole lot. I mean, it's still a loss of, of their own kinsmen. So it's a big deal. They, they lose this and Joshua absolutely falls to pieces. Mm. I mean, like he is wallowing in the dirt. God, you've forsaken us. What are you gonna do about your great name? What is God, the first thing he says? Get up. <laughs> Why have you fallen on your face, Joshua? Israel has sinned. Um, and I think we, we need to, and I'm, I'm trying to think of the best way to, to, to express this. So if, while I'm saying you come up with something better what I'm saying, please, please jump in. Like we need to, to trust that when a hard time comes, God hasn't lost his mind because that's almost what Joshua was acting like. It's like, I mean, look at verse nine again. Um, uh, the Canaanites and the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? God, everything about you is at stake in this situation. And God's like, no, it's not. God, God is not threatened by our hard circumstances. He's not threatened by these things. We need to take stock. You know, if, if something comes upon us, Yes, it's hard. Yes, it's grievous. Yes, sometimes we don't know what we're gonna do, but we need to get to the place where we're not acting like Joshua does in verse nine, but we need to get to the place where Joshua didn't get until God got him there, which is simply, all right, Lord, you're in control. I've gotta trust you. What do I need to do? And that's when we go back to the word. We go to what Mark was reading in other places um, because Joshua was making it this, you know, Lord, everything's coming to an end when God's like, no, somebody broke faith. We're going to fix this and keep going. Um, and I'm not trying to minimize what happened to Achan and his family, but it's like, when hard times come, it's an opportunity to draw near to God. It's an opportunity um, to see God's faithfulness, an opportunity to say, God, I don't know how this is going to work itself out, but I know you're at work and somehow you're going to, you're still going to bring glory to your name no matter what. And And I think if our hearts are oriented, right, and this is where we have to do a lot of work in our own hearts, is that whatever comes about is ultimately gonna be for God's greatest glory and our greatest good. Um, and that's where when we don't get the outcome like what you guys got, that's when we have to say, you know, like with Job, um, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Shall we not receive, or shall we receive good from the hand of God and not calamity as well? And it says, and all that Job didn't send with his lips. We need to get to the place where we're not absolutely losing our minds and thinking that God has somehow lost his mind because, wow, this is just the worst possible circumstance. Um, and I think we we have to continually go back to Acts and the cross, Acts chapter two and Acts chapter four. If, if the most evil, awful, despicable act in the history of, of the universe, the crucifixion of God's son, if that was God's plan to bring him glory, bring our salvation and to usher us into his presence forever, you know, who are we to think God can't use our smaller circumstances and and bring such great good in our own lives and in the lives of other people um and so it's just it's a matter of perspective uh yes, hard times are hard, but we don't need to lose our mind because God hasn't lost his that's good so let, let's uh, look at chapter eight here of uh, Joshua um
0: just a quick note about this. I don't want to spend a long time on this part, but it, it, I love seeing God's sovereignty and human responsibility, again, side by side. So see if you can understand what I think is going on here. Uh, let me read the first two verses of Joshua 8. The Lord said to Joshua, now that, they've, now that Achan has been dealt with uh, and his rebellion has been taken care of, the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise and go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai. their sovereignty, right? God has given them over. You're going to be victorious this time. And his people, his city, and his land, it's all going to be yours. And you shall do to Ai and its king, as you did to Jericho and its king, only its spoil and its livestock. You shall take his plunder for yourselves, lay an ambush against the city behind it. Now, do you notice that last line? Lay an ambush against the city behind it. In other words, you're going to win this battle, but it's gonna happen through you using wisdom in the way you fight tomorrow. So this doesn't eliminate human responsibility. Look at the very next verse. Joshua get, comes up with a plan of attack. I mean, stop. I mean, if God says, you're gonna to win tomorrow, the battle, our temptation is just to kick our feet up and go, well, if God says that AI is ours, then who cares what we do? Human responsibility doesn't matter. I'm gonna go watch, you know, I'm going to go watch a, a movie tonight. I'm, not, I'm just gonna take a break tonight. I'm not, I'm not gonna try. But no, God says, I'm gonna give you the city through human means, which includes an ambush, which includes careful planning, which includes human responsibility. You see how the two go together? God gives them the victory through human wisdom and, and responsibility. So verse three. So Joshua uh, and uh, all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai, and Joshua chose 30,000 men of valor and sent them out by night. And he commanded them, behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but... All of you remain ready, and I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they come out against us, just as before, we shall flee before them. And they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. This is smart. This is intelligent way of fighting. For they will say, they are fleeing from us, just as before. So we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city, for the Lord your God will give it into your hand." And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. So again, this is like the Lord saying to Paul in Acts 18. Remember when Paul is in Corinth and he's being opposed. And apparently even Paul could get discouraged. I know it's hard to picture Paul as a human being, but even Paul seemed to be struggling with discouragement in Acts 18. And remember the Lord appeared to Paul the Lord spoke to Paul. What does he say? Paul, go on preaching. I mean, you know Paul's in a hard spot when you have to tell Paul, go on preaching. Paul's discouraged to some degree. The Lord says, go on preaching, Paul. Do not be silent. Don't give up. Why? For I have many in this city who are my people. That's a a clear doctrine of of election. God says, there are people in this city who are mine, but they don't know it yet. They haven't even heard the gospel yet, but they're already mine. I have chosen them. So, Paul, don't stop preaching, because when you preach, I'm going to make the word effective for those who are mine, and their hearts are going to melt, and they're, are, they're going to be moved by the gospel, and they're going to be led to repentance and faith, and they're going to be born again, like Lydia, whose heart the Lord turned to give heed to Paul's message. Then what's going to happen? Paul, you're going to have a very fruitful ministry in Corinth, and so what did he do? He stayed for 18 months preaching faithfully, and the Lord led many people to Christ. So, Human responsibility and God's sovereignty work together as best friends. They are not enemies. God works through us to accomplish uh, his his goals. And so similarly here, he worked through Joshua to take the city of Ai. Reflections on on this story? All right, let's go to chapter 11. We're in a whirlwind tour today. We're going to go really fast. Joshua chapter 11. This is one of those amazing miracles. I have no idea how the Lord did this precisely. uh, But look at the, I'm sorry, Joshua 10. I think I said the wrong chapter. Joshua chapter 10. And Greg, could you read verses 11 to 14?
1: All right, Joshua 10, 11 through 14. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, sun, stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ejelon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. And so Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Now, I have no idea how the
0: Lord did that. I don't know what what mechanism he used, but that is an astonishing miracle. God's sovereignty, even over sun and moon in the sky. And you see that he's the God of all nature. Um, Any thoughts on that miracle?
2: The huge hailstone's too. Yes. Uh, you got to love both of those in, in, the, in the same little account. And, uh, and I think when we get to the natural, natural disasters in that week, in a few weeks, we'll see more like that. Yes.
0: So Joshua 11. Here, look, look with me at the next chapter. And before I read this, we all know the story of Pharaoh. We just talked about it for a couple of Sundays, about the Lord hardening his heart. But there are other stories very similar to that that we're probably less familiar with, and this is one of them. You may know this verse, you may not know this verse, but look with us here. Um, Joshua 11, starting in verse 18. Joshua 11, verse 18. Now listen to this. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel, except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. Uh, they They took them all in battle, Now, why did those kings choose not to make peace with Israel? Verse 20. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle. Wow. In order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. I mean, these are not verses that we often see in the Bible. We, we're used to the Pharaoh one, but the, these verses appear in other places. There's in Deuteronomy a verse just like this one, but let me read that again. It says that the people did not make peace with Israel, so Israel took them in battle. Verse 20, why did they not make peace with Israel? For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, that they should be devoted to destruction. I mean, that is astonishing stuff. So, in a number of weeks, we're going to get to God's sovereignty over human sinfulness, and we're going to talk about verses like this in much more detail, Lord willing. But these are really verses that the first time you hear them, you can be somewhat baffled by them. Thoughts about God's sovereignty over even uh, the hardness of the human heart.
1: I mean, it's obvious. they're Like you said, they're still responsible. Um, and at the end of the day, when they stand in judgment, they're going to have no one to blame but themselves. Like, it goes back to what you mentioned, I don't remember, it was months ago now, I think, about God's uh, will of command, will of decree, or his sovereign will versus his will of command, his revealed will. Um, You know, what God is going to do or thing, some of that, like, it's just beyond us. Like, we, we can't step into, like, the inner... Trinitarian discussion between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit to really fully fathom all that God's plan is. We only know what God shares with us. Um, And his his sovereign plan for every detail from the beginning of history to the end, that's not something that any created being can fully grasp. Only Mm -hmm. God can. Um, And so in his time and in his way, God is going to bring about exactly what he's planned but never in such a way to use some of the old confessions that violates our will or our responsibility or our freedom before God. The same way, like with Joseph's brothers, what they did to Joseph was evil. It was evil. It was, uh, by evil intent. Same thing for these people here. Yes, it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts, but insofar as they are concerned, they did what they wanted to do. And, Absolutely. like, when it comes to human freedom, and I know we can talk about this later more, like, one of the things that is so revolutionary to understand is God does give us the freedom to do what we most want to do. Like, that, and there's a whole, whole discussion that goes into this, but they didn't do this against their will. Right. When we, whenever we sin, we're doing what we want. We can never claim, ultimately, the devil made me do it. Um, we still willingly do it. Satan can influence, he can tempt and this, that, and the other, but we are responsible for what we do, even as Christians. We are responsible for the decisions we make. And, you know, we might say something or do something and immediately be like, oh, my goodness, that was stupid. And upon further reflection, we're like, okay, I shouldn't have said that. But why did we say it? Because we wanted to. Oh, I didn't really mean that. Yes, I did. I wouldn't have said it if I didn't mean it. I might not have understood all that that I wanted to happen with it, but we say what we say, we do what we do, because we want what we want. And so these people here who would not make peace with Israel, they didn't want to make peace. It wasn't like they're sitting there, all right, let's make peace with Israel. Oh, God's making us do different. They didn't want to. And you could have gone with every conceivable reason, even preaching, look, God's in control. He's hardening. No, we we don't want to. We don't believe. They're they're not going to hear it. Okay, Um, They did what they wanted to do and God still accomplished his plan.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, God let them do what they wanted. Yeah, that's right. And and passively then was in control, yep. So let's
0: get to the end of the book of Joshua. Let's go to two, two more passages. One is in Joshua 21. It's just a wonderful encouragement. No real comment on this passage, but the end of Joshua 21 is just a wonderful word as the promised land is being given to all the tribes, fulfilling all of God's promises. Joshua 21 Verses 43 to 45, a great reassuring text. Joshua 21, verse 43. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises. That the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. That's wonderful. Now turn to chapter 24. You, you know the verse. I mean, everyone knows the choose you this day whom you will serve verse in Matthew, in Joshua 24, which is a wonderful text. Before we get there, Greg, can I get you to read an extended text here? Mm-hmm. Um, and again, listen, just like Acts 13, you're going to hear God seeming to do everything In this passage. So Joshua's going to summarize the history again, and guess who the main actor is? It's Yahweh, it's God. Can you read just all the way from 1 to 13 of Joshua 24?
1: Yeah. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. And you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you, so I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you. And also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, And I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. It's just a, a remarkable
0: text on God's sovereignty over the nation of Israel. And uh, Jerry, can I get you to read a few more verses here? Can you read verses 14 through 18?
2: And now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in those in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my home, we will serve the Lord. Then the Lord answered, far be it from us that we, uh, then the people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods for it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers out from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery and who did great signs in our sight and preserved us all the way that we went and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the people, the Amorites who lived in the land, Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God.
0: Yeah, so um, let let me just add a point here. Uh, with, With the news stories, you know, we hear a thousand news stories every week, and we forget most of them within about five minutes. There's one news story that for some reason for me has just stuck with me for about a month and a half, I think it was March 27th. I, well, is that the right date for the Nashville shooting that happened at the Covenant School, the, the Christian school? Uh, is it was it Nashville, the Covenant School, mm-hmm. I believe. Yeah. And I, I followed that story more, far more closely than I would normally follow any story. And the fact that so the, the pastor there, PCA pastor at that church where the school, you know, the school and the church are on the same campus where the, where the shooting took place. And only three of the young children were killed in the school, three nine-year-old children were killed. And one of the girls, I think her name was Hallie Scruggs, uh, she's the pastor's daughter who who was killed in the shooting. And um, I I, I went back and watched some of his preaching, you know, before this all happened. And he had preached on Jesus at Lazarus' tomb, weeping with those who weep at at a funeral just a few weeks before this had happened to his own family. And I'd been checking their live stream each week to see when he's going to come back to the pulpit, because it's a pretty intense thing to come back after your nine-year-old daughter is brutally killed. I can't imagine that. And so he came back today to preach. This is his first Sunday back about two hours ago, and I I was watching the live stream. And um, as you can imagine, he gets emotional just from the very beginning. Uh, Just when he says the word March 27th, his voice just breaks up. He can hardly talk about it. But... This is a guy who, based on his own preaching, believes in the total sovereignty of God. I mean, he's a PCA pastor. You kind of have to to get the job. But uh, he believes in the total sovereignty of God. And th- th- I've heard him preach on the sovereignty of God in the past. And so now you've got the merger of absolute belief in God's providence coming alongside with unimaginable personal pain, right? And you've got the, the mingling of those two things. And I, I don't want anything we ever say to want to sound like we're minimizing the human side of you can believe these doctrines 100%. And that does not mean you are not weeping with unimaginable anguish and grief for weeks and months and probably for decades. Every, I mean, every time her birthday comes for the rest of their life, right? I mean, every time there's gonna be some kind of memorial anniversary, every time they're at Christmas or Thanksgiving, they have three sons now who are alive and their youngest child, this daughter, is gone. And they, 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 they he, he said that she believed in Jesus. He's convinced that she is in heaven with the Lord right now. And so he talked about, he said, I have unshakable hope. And he said, and I have immense grief. And he talked about the mixture of the two. And he said, I want you to know that this church, and he's just, again, he was preaching this two and a half, three hours ago at his church on the live stream. He said, I want to know, th- this church, a large church, you know, he said, you guys have done such an amazing job coming alongside our family, providing meals, weeping with, with us who weep, you know, like being there with us through this incredible uh, tragedy. And he said, there are, there are times where we just need someone to silently sit with us and to just enter into our grief and just be there. And his sermon text was John 19, Jesus on the cross, caring for his mother when she's losing her son, you know, on the cross. And what does he say? John, you know, uh, he says to John, this is your mother and mother, this is your son. And he's caring for her and those women sitting there at the crossing and, and, and loving Jesus in that moment of immense grief as the sword pierced Mary's soul, right? As Luke, uh, Luke's gospel predicted. But just, I don't, I don't wanna lose the human dimension here. When Paul is in Philippi, I'm sorry, when he's in Rome writing to Philippi, the letter of the Philippians, Philippians 2. Remember Epaphroditus? Remember this guy? I love this guy. we, We will meet him one day in heaven. He's a real person. Epaphroditus traveled 800 miles on Roman roads to get all the way to Paul in a Roman house arrest situation. Remember, he's waiting to see Caesar for two years in Rome. And Epaphroditus finds him, gives him all this money and uh, all this support for physical food that he needs as he's chained to a Roman guard, you know, writing those letters in the prison epistles and stuff. And Epaphroditus apparently gets sick on the way to see Paul. And he draws, so, he gets so sick, by the time he gets to Paul, he's nearly dead from illness. And in those days, people did not often recover from serious illness, you often died. Uh, and so this man's laying there sick near Paul, he recovers his health back, and what does Paul say? He says, God was merciful to me, allowing Epaphroditus to come back to full health. And he says, he spared me sorrow upon sorrow. And I'm all the more anxious, and he's all the more anxious that you see him again and that you be comforted now that you see that he's back with you again. Paul, who believes in the sovereignty of God as much as any human being who has ever lived. I mean, the man wrote the most important text in the whole of history on God's sovereignty. He says, God spared me sorrow upon sorrow and allowing him to live. And that same Paul knew that if Epaphroditus would have died, God would have had a good purpose for him not sparing him sorrow upon sorrow, but giving him sorrow on top of sorrow. But it doesn't get rid of the fact that there is still sorrow. And so these two things can perfectly coexist in the Christian heart and mind. A rock-solid belief in God's utter goodness and sovereignty and immense tears at the funeral of a, of a of a loved one, those, those two things go together. I, I know we've talked a lot about Liliana uh, uh, six months ago, especially, but th- this church, I saw it with with all of you here. There was no doubt. I, I saw no one uh, saying like Job's wife, curse God and die. There was there was no attack on God in this church. I didn't hear anyone undermining God's goodness and His sovereignty in any of that trial. But I saw a whole lot of tears, and those are not contradictions. It, there was a complete trust. And there were a lot of tears that mixed together, and that's because we're human beings, and even Jesus himself wept at the tomb of Lazarus, knowing that, what, in 30 minutes, Lazarus would be walking out of that tomb. It did not stop Jesus from entering into the humanity of grief and to seeing what it does to people and and weeping with those who weep. So the Psalms have a beautiful mixture of trusting God's sovereignty and also expressing lament. And those two things can wrestle together inside of uh, the human heart. It's part of our, of, of our condition. And, and we should not despise tears as if they're less than a total trust in God's sovereignty. No, we trust God and we weep. Th- those, things, those things go together. We don't weep as those who have no hope, but we do weep with, as those who do have, have hope in Christ. We're almost out of time. Greg, let's jump ahead to the, to the first Samuel. Remind me, this is chapter, I've got it here, 23. Yes. Is that right? First let's turn Samuel, to first Samuel 23. Chapter 23. Can you walk us through this, Greg?
1: Yeah, so you guys, um, I'm going to cover a lot of history really quickly. I'm going to trust you know some of this. Uh, Before David was established um, as king over all of Israel, the the previous king, Saul, was constantly trying to kill him, put him to death. He was chasing after him a lot. David was constantly on the run for his life. Uh, Saul's own son, Jonathan, actually helped David out. They were, like, closer than brothers in terms of their friendship. Um, but David is always on the run. You know, he, he spares Saul's life a number of times when he could have killed him. And Saul's like, oh, I was wrong, I'm sorry, whatever. But then he keeps going after David. Um, you know, so many times Saul is trying to kill David. And, you know, usually David is able to outwit Saul. He's able to, you know, use his cunning, whatever, he has help. This is one occasion when in terms of like close friends, David's own abilities, he didn't have any of that. Um And so look at 1 Samuel chapter 23, look at verse 19. It says, Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horesh on the hill of Hakilah, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. Saul said, May you be blessed of the Lord, or by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me." Go, make, make yet more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is and who has seen him there, for it is told me that he is very cunning. See therefore and take note of all the lurking places where he hides. It's like, make sure this is right. Um, it says, verse 24, David and his men were in the wilderness um, and then Saul and his men, this is verse 25, went to seek him. David was told, so he went down to the rock. Saul heard of it, so he's pursuing after David. And look at verse 26. This is what is interesting. Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul as Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. Pause. David is out of options. David is about to get caught. There's nothing anyone in Israel can do to help him. And then verse 27, it's because it was as Saul was closing in, a messenger came to Saul saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. And the, the whole point is, a military maneuver by an enemy is what saved David's life. How in the world could the Philistines attack at the right time, at that time? Only by God's providence by his intent to save David. There was no earthly means in the immediate vicinity by which David could deliver himself. He wasn't going to be able to do it. He didn't have any extra help. Him and his men were not going to be enough this time. Saul finally had him. And then God sent the Philistines to attack Israel. And by God's grace, this unfaithful king was actually faithful in this moment to go lead his people in battle. So, he went off to fight the Philistines and David got away. And it's just one of those things. I remember reading this. Uh, I, you know, I think I've encouraged you guys. I don't always read in the book. I'm listening to the Bible. That's how I do my read through a lot of times. I remember reading this. I, t- I texted them. I was like, this is amazing for providence. God ordained a military maneuver by a hostile foreign enemy in order to save the life of David at the exact right moment. I just found that fascinating. That's good. Next week will be nature and
0: natural disasters will be the topic we'll be dealing with. Can you close us in prayer, Jerry? Yes, sir.
1: Gracious
2: Father, we are uh, so unheartened to uh, think about um, the way you took Liliana home and uh, the, the pastor's daughter in Nashville um, by your good purpose and plan and, and uh, sovereignty. Then the way you healed up uh, Maggie and her brought the um, – philistines along just at the right time to save david and lord we want to pray that this week uh no matter if it looks i'm good or not so good that we would trust you with our circumstances knowing that you have perfectly uh arranged them um for your good for your glory and for our good um to conform us to the image of christ and lord i pray that we would see all of life like that that we would race to your word as Mark and Kelly did um, on Monday, and that we would trust you um, with all of our heart and uh, and not lean on our own understanding, uh, which will also be would often will be faulty. So we commit this uh, to you. So grateful for um, just even putting together uh, man's responsibility and your sovereignty so perfectly um, in Scripture. Help us to trust even when we don't understand.